Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. I know the bulletin says Joshua, chapter 2. As always, that's my fault. Judges, chapter 2. I'd really like us, we're going to read uh, just a few verses this morning, or this morning, this evening, but we're really going to focus on verse 10, just briefly, and consider the import that this has, uh, not only for uh, the people in this uh, particular generation in the context of which we're reading, but also its import for us uh, today in the 21st century, in this era of salvation history. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went out, each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heretz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there are also arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor did they know the work that he had done for Israel. Let's go before the Lord and ask that he would bless his word. Our gracious God and fathers, we consider these uh, few short verses. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and a renewed diligence that we might uh, pass down the faith that has been once for all handed to the saints. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who have uh, ever participated in a relay race or watched one of the uh, relay uh, events on um, uh, perhaps in the Olympics or anything like that, you are, I think, familiar with what it is going on. There are, it's a, uh, a long uh, type of race that consists in multiple legs or stages, and every portion of the relay race is important. Uh, perhaps the first runner is a magnificent sprinter, but if he is unable to pass down the baton to the next uh, contestant, then they fall behind. Perhaps uh, the second leg of the race, they have fallen greatly behind, and yet they persevere diligently and are able to pass down the baton well. Every facet is important. Every player has a significant role to play in this grand race that is being run. What I'd like us to consider uh, this evening, again, just for a few moments, is I'd like us to see these few verses as something like a relay race that is transpiring. Three distinct generations are being brought into view, each with their own sets of, set of strengths and weaknesses. Some where the emphasis is on the strengths, others on the great weaknesses that befall. Uh, and yet, I think what we see transpiring here uh, presents a sober warning as well, as well as a strong encouragement for us as the people of God. I'd, I'd like us to consider this in three distinct parts. First, I would like to consider that, uh, the, the Exodus generation. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the wilderness generation. And then finally, the generation that comes in to claim the conquest and see how the book of Judges evaluates the strengths and weaknesses of each of these three. 
I think we all, I hope, by this point recognize that the great redemptive moment in Israel's history, at least under the Old Covenant, is that of uh, the Red Sea Exodus, that great moment when Pharaoh's power and dominion over Israel is finally severed and shattered once and for all. As they are brought through the waters of baptism, as Paul says, they are baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. Uh, that cruel tyrant no longer exercises his grisly dominion over them. What a wondrous event that must have been. Consider yourself, if you were just, you know, uh, uh, just five, six, seven years old, passing through the walls of the Red Sea, uh, seeing Pharaoh's army, that, um, that cruel host that has kept your your whole family in, in servitude and slavery for 10 generations, you see them drowned in a moment, in a moment's notice, in the blink of an eye. How wondrous that would have been. And yet, as we continue to work our way through those opening books of Scripture, we find that uh, Israel's heart uh, was still quite hard. You know, I'm a Floridian by nature, and you hear the, you know, the, the phrase, you can take the boy out of Florida, but you can't take the Florida out of the boy. Well, what we see here is something similar. You've taken the people out of e Egypt, but for some, it was very hard to take Egypt out of the people. So their hearts and their minds and their affections are continually drawn back uh, to their former status as slaves. So don't we remember the leeks and the onions? That Surely this is better than life here in the wilderness, even though the Lord is providing for us day and night, even though uh, we are no longer enslaved. They forget the bitter and cruel days and years. And so Israel, that first generation, complains and grumbles in the wilderness. You're familiar with the story even as they make their way to Horeb. They erect a golden calf and say, this is the God who has brought us out. Let us bow down and worship him. And as Moses is communing with, communing with God at the top of the mountain, here's Israel engaged in sexual immorality, gross sexual immorality, idolatry. When the Lord tells them to go and take possession of a land that's been promised to them, they tremble in fear. An entire generation saved two people to where the Lord finally has to say, because of your grumbling, you will die in the wilderness. Anyone over the age of 20 will not live to see the day in which Israel comes to take possession of the land. There's an entire psalm written about it. Can you imagine this particular song being sung as part of the life of the people of God? A song that commemorates not the great heroic deeds of one's fathers, but their many failures. As the Spirit says, surely they will not enter into my rest. How frightening it must be and then, of course, we make our way to the book of Leviticus, where Leviticus teaches us two great truths. One, the holiness of God, and two, the necessity of atonement that that holy God might dwell in the midst of a sinful people, that the, that the sinful nation might not be consumed in wrath. And then we make our way to the book of Numbers, uh, the story that recounts the 40 years of Israel's wilderness sojournings. If you notice, that Numbers probably might not be your immediate go-to devotional book. You might typically be thinking, well, oh, we want the Gospel of John, we want Philippians, but Numbers is, is so critical, and it's divided into two parts. If you notice, uh, and it's probably why your, our eyes glaze over so much when getting to Numbers, it begins with a census. You go, I don't know what to do with this. 
And then about halfway through the book, there's another census. And yet those form the book divisions, so to speak. Verses, chapters 1 to 25 uh, tells us the, the life story of that, wilder, that initial Exodus generation and how they die in the wilderness. And then a new census is taken for a new generation. And the second half of the story presents a stark contrast as this second generation picks up the baton and begins to run the race well. It's a great encouragement, whereas the first half of Numbers uh, is nothing but discouraging story after discouraging story after discouraging story of repeated grumbling uh, and um, uh, moaning and groaning and uh, death and destruction and disobedience. Once the pivot comes in Numbers, it all changes Here we see conquest after conquest after conquest with this new generation. Here's a generation that is devoted to the Lord with their whole hearts. Victory after victory, even times of obedience. Even there's these these very odd stories at the end of Numbers where uh, uh, these people have these disputes over land allotments. And you think, what is the big deal here? What is going on? And yet you see what this new generation is doing. They are taking these disputes, and they're presenting it to Moses saying, what does the word of the Lord say? And they are trying to handle even their daily family affairs according to the dictates of Scripture. Here is a generation that is running the race well. And it is to this generation that Moses gives his final three farewell sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. That's really what Deuteronomy is, is Moses' farewell addresses. As he speaks to them on the plains of Moab, as they're on the cusp, on the eve of entering the, con- the, the, the land of Canaan to take possession of something that's been promised to them. And he continually tells the people, stay true to the Lord just as you have done, remain faithful. Then you make it to the book of Joshua. Again, for the most part, victory after victory after victory. There are some hiccups. You have the great uh, transgressive moment at Ai, and yet the people respond in executing church discipline in a proper sense. And again, we make it to the last half of Joshua, and most people don't know what to do because you're dealing with kind of real estate developments as the second half of the book. And yet what it's showing is that the Lord has been faithful to the promises of his people. He has promised land to each of the tribes, and the the end of Joshua is apportioning out the land to the various tribes because they have taken conquest. They have taken possession of the land in obedience and in integrity. I want you to listen to how the book of Joshua ends. This is chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. And, And while I'm reading this, I want you to look at our passage before us and see the similarities. This is the end of Joshua. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, uh, Eretz, I'm sorry, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Here is that second generation, and Joshua ends on a high point. Obedient to the Lord and all of his commands, victorious in battle, the recipients of the blessings of Canaan. In many ways, this second generation is the ideal generation. You know, I'm reminded of, was it, um, was it Tom Brokaw who wrote The Greatest Generation uh, a few years ago uh, about uh, World War II 
Um, anyways, I just think of that when, you, when, we, when we hear of the, the great victories here. And yet when we see our passage tonight in verse 10, there is one glaring error that befalls this generation. Look again here at verse 10. After the second generation dies, after Joshua dies, after Caleb dies, here arises a third generation. And it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Can you imagine the life of a, a congregation that is obedient to the Lord and, and all that he says and does? Here is a, a congregation that, reform, that, that, that worships according to the principles that the Lord has set down in worship. Here is a congregation that loves to give. Here is a congregation that loves to pray. Here is a congregation uh, that has ideal marriages and families and kids. An ideal congregation in so many ways, and yet in this one respect. All the kids grow up and have, they don't know anything about the faith into which they've been brought. Isn't it striking? This second generation consists of those who, even as children, passed through the Red Sea. And it says, there arose another generation who did not even know. Not simply that they repudiated the works of the Lord, but they did not even know the works that the Lord had done for Israel. The second generation had failed miserably in passing the torch. They had run the race well, but they had not passed the baton as they should. And this sets up the stage for Israel's downfall. As you continue to read the book of Judges, you see a downward spiral transpire to where by the end of the book, Israel looks no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what I'd like us to consider simply today. The importance of Christian education. We can go to Sunday school, we can be faithful members, and even uh, godly church officers do everything right, do everything well, but if we fail in instructing our covenant children, it has all been for naught, humanly speaking. I think this is why it's so significant in Deuteronomy chapter 6, even as Moses tells the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what does he say? And you shall teach this diligently to your children. When you wake up, when you're walking along the path, when you're at the dinner table, when you're going to bed, these things you are to instill in your children so that when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies? and the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, well, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers." And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord, just as he has commanded us to do it. You make it to Psalm chapter 78, a very long psalm, but I think that drives home this same point where the singers of the psalm says that the things that we have heard and known, those things that our fathers had told us, we will not hide them from our children. 
but we will tell them to the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. For he has appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that the next generation might know them. Why? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. As we consider the implication as we stand in this moment in salvation history, we recognize that a greater exodus has come. The death and resurrection of Christ, which has inaugurated the onset, the inauguration of the new creation. That great end time exodus that will culminate on the day of our Savior's great appearing. And it is our task and our duty to pass down this faith, the doctrine of redemption to the coming generation, that they might know the wonderful works of God found in the death and resurrection of Christ. When historians look back on this generation, even 40 years from now looking on the life of this church, what will be said of us? What is our task for the coming generation? It is our solemn duty not only to run the race, but to pass the torch. No matter how well we run the race, if we do not pass down the torch, uh, it'll be for naught. I'm not saying this to condemn, but to encourage. I want us to think of the work that we do in family worship, or the work that's being done in Sunday school. All the women here who work and labor here in the nursery, the women's ministry, the men's studies, the Socratic club, uh, teaching at Oregon State, uh, it, it might seem small and menial, but it's faithful and it's an important task that is set before us, and it is critical, and we must not, we cannot fail in this particular venture. And this is why, uh, for our denomination, the work of the Christian Education Committee is so important. Because the work of the Christian, Edu Christian Education Committee is given to provide us with the resources that are needed in instructing our kids, and raising up and training new ministers and continuing the work and the education of its ministers and providing great literature such as uh, tracts and even New Horizons and Ordained Servant and all these things. And so I, I really just want us to drive home why this committee is so important. It is not just a committee for the sake of committees. This is part of a very critical task that is set before us uh, in being a faithful generation that passes down the faith. And so for that reason, uh, it is my great pleasure and my great honor to present uh, to the pulpit uh, the Reverend Danny Olinger as he comes to tell us of the work of the Christian Education Committee. And so I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Danny, please come up and take your time, uh, talk about the work of the committee, and feel free when he's done for you guys to ask questions uh, because this is, this is so important. This is important for us. If the church is ever to grow, we need these things. So.